Amen. It's good to be here with you this morning. I uh, survived the Pikes Peak ascent yesterday. I don't think I set any course records. If I did, they haven't let me know about that yet. Uh, but I will admit my legs are a little questionable, so if I go down, you know, it's the next man up, right? Be ready, somebody. Uh, and the, the, the assignment, by the way, is the book of Numbers. So uh, we are in this 66-week book series. Uh, each week we're looking at a different book of the Bible. Today we're in the book of Numbers. So if you would please turn to Numbers chapter 13. If you are able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read Numbers 13, beginning in verse 25. And we're going to go through chapter 14, verse 4. This is God's very Word. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we, we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Let's pray. Father, you are faithful even when we are not. I pray as we see your faithfulness to your promises that will motivate us to trust you, to obey you for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So one of my primary resources that I'm using in this study is the ESV Study Bible. And the ESV Study Bible says that the theme of Numbers is the gradual fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. The gradual fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. Now let's remind ourselves, what are the promises made to Abraham that we saw back in beginning in Genesis chapter 12? There's really four elements to the promise. There's a promise of land. There's a promise of many descendants. There's a promise of God's blessing, His presence And then fourth, there's a promise that God's going to use His people to be a blessing to all the the nations of the earth. And so we're going to see God faithfully, gradually fulfilling these promises, and we're going to talk about what this means for us today. So first of all, let's talk about the promise of land. The book of Numbers takes place in three different lands, three different locations. It begins at Mount Sinai. 
And really the story is picking up where it left off largely in Exodus 19. And everything that we've had since then has mostly been law and instruction. So we're picking up the storyline. So we're in Exodus 19, it's Mount Sinai. And, uh, and then we're going to have a transition from there to Kadesh. Kadesh is where, gonna, where they're going to spend the majority of time in the wilderness. Uh, the events that we're focusing on today, the spying out the land, it, it, it's, it happens uh, it, while the people are in Kadesh. And then finally there's a transition to Moab. And Moab is where the book ends. It's sort of right on the banks of the Jordan River. The God's people, this is significant. They, they, they've been transitioning toward the land, the specific land that God promised them uh, that we saw going back to Genesis. And in Numbers 13, we have this story about these spies, 12 spies sent in to spy out the land and come back and give a report of what they find. So look, look with me, for example, at Numbers 13, verses 1 and 2. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. I want you to notice that last phrase. God is the one giving this land to the people of Israel. He's going to do it. He's going to do it in a powerful way, similar to how He powerfully delivered them from Egypt and slavery. In a similar way, I'm about to give you this land. And in verse 27, we learn the land is good land. It flows with milk and honey. There's great fruit. They bring back some of the fruit. I like to refer to fruit as God's candy. When you get good fruit, it's good. It's better than you know, the, the candy you buy in the store. Uh, and, and then the majority of the spies, 10 of the 12, come back and say, it is, it is great land. You know, it'd be wonderful to live there. But there's this massive glaring problem. There's these other people who live there. And we seem like grasshoppers to them. And when the people, the 10 of the 12, give this report, this majority report, all of a sudden the people begin to grumble and they begin to complain. And they say, why in the world did you bring us out here to just to die in this land if we obviously can't take over? And they start longing for Egypt. Like, we were better off in Egypt. We were better off in slavery. And this is one of the major themes that you see throughout this book is this grumbling of God's people against Moses, grumbling of God's people against God. Like, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? This doesn't make any sense. Let's go back. And so as a result, God punishes this particular generation. Everyone 20 years old and older, He says, you are no longer going to be able to enter the land. And for 40 years, they wander. And they're in the wilderness. And it's, it's a year for every day that the spies were gone, the 40 days. And God's going to, it's going to be a new generation that's going to enter. And they're going to be led by two people, Caleb and Joshua. And the reason is because chapter 14, verse 9, they had this mentality that said, look, the Lord is with us. So therefore, we're not afraid. If God's with us, then by all means, let's go take the land. They weren't afraid because they, they, they believed, they trusted And so we see that God is going to ultimately be faithful to His promise. He is going to provide the land for His people. It is going to be the land that He promised to Abraham. And as you get toward the end of Numbers, you start to see them uh, going in. You start to see them defeating nations that come and attack them, defeating kings. And we're going to especially see this in the book of Joshua, where they go and take the land. And the book really ends on this note of the fulfillment of the promise of the land. For example, Numbers 36 verse 9 says, Each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on 
to its own inheritance. The inheritance is the land, and the tribes will inherit their particular pieces of land, and it will be theirs, and God will fulfill his promise. I've had a number of people say to me over the past couple of weeks, we're surprised that you haven't said anything about your football team uh, winning lately. And, uh, you know, the number 10 in the nation right now. And so, you know, my response is I'm trying to stay humble, right? And pride comes before the fall. So I'm not going to bring a lot of attention to that. But I I do love watching college football. And I love in particular when you have an underdog going in and they're supposed to get beat really bad and they end up winning. And that almost happened against our team last night. And that, that would have provided a really great sermon illustration. Uh, but it would have been a very terrible experience for me. Uh, but I do have a couple of examples that happened last weekend. And I don't mean to offend anybody, but Marshall defeated number eight Notre Dame. And Appalachian State went into number six Texas A&M and beat Texas A&M. And virtually the whole nation who's interested in anybody who's interested in college football delighted in this, unless you're a Notre Dame fan or an Aggie fan, Uh, because there's just something about a a team that's not supposed to win going into this huge environment. All the the odds are stacked against them and they win. It's just incredible. You know, they could go in with the mentality. There's no way we're just here for a paycheck. But every once in a while they go in with the mentality. We we can win. And sometimes they do. And when they do, it's glorious. And the point is this. From a human perspective, God's people were massive underdogs. There's no way. From a human perspective, it's not possible. We can't go take this land. Uh, But as soon as God says, I am with you, I am with you, and I will give you this land, all of a sudden, they're actually not the ones who are underdogs anymore. All they need is to have the mentality of Joshua and Caleb, who said, look, the Lord is with us. What are we afraid of? And so how do we apply this? What does it mean that God promises Abraham land? And and what does this have to do with us today? You know, some some in the more charismatic traditions and stripes, uh, you know, will sometimes kind of talk about this land that's here today that's for me, that God's giving me. Uh, I can imagine somebody you know, wanting to buy this piece of property, real nice property in Black Forest. And they come across this passage in Genesis 13, 15. It says, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And they say, oh, this is God's verse for me. You know, I mean, I just read it. I'm going to claim it like this is this is it. I've got the, the verse to back it up. And all the land that you see is for me. I, I don't think that's an, a, a legitimate application <laughs> of this promise that's made to, Mo, to, to Abraham, right? I'm giving you this particular land. So, so we need to ask the question, you know, what does the New Testament emphasize when it comes to God's people receiving a land? Is, is, there a, is, there, is, it, is it addressed at all? And the answer is, it is. Uh, let me give you one example. 2 Peter 3.13 says, But according to His promise... We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And Revelation 21 talks about a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. So so do we have promises that we can cling to about a future land, a future inheritance? Absolutely. And Peter tells us, actually, in the meantime, we are sojourners. We are strangers. We are pilgrims in a foreign land. And sometimes it feels more foreign than others. Sometimes it feels a lot like Babylon. Sometimes it feels a lot like Egypt. 
right? But, and the question for us is this, are, are we going to live and act and talk like the 10 of the 12 who said, there's no way. The giants in this land are just too big. Or are we going to be like the two of the 12 who said, look, we got God's promises and God is with us. What is there to fear? We have great reason to trust God's promises and we have great reason to live like the two of the 12. And this brings us now to talk about the promise of sons and daughters. Uh, the book is called Numbers. It comes from the Greek title of the book, Arithmoi, where we get our word arithmetic. And it's because we have these uh, two census reports, uh, one at the beginning of the book and one at the end of the book. And I looked it up just in case I, I needed to say the plural of the word census. It's actually censuses. So if I say censuses, you know, don't, it, it's proper, it's right. But I want to look it up and not embarrass myself. So there are two censuses in this book. The first one comes at the beginning, chapters one through four, and it's the census report of the generation that's not going to enter the land, that's going to die in the wilderness. And then there's the census report, the numbers of the people of the new generation that is going to enter the land. And we learn that there are roughly 600,000 men, and that's significant because these are the men who are going to go to war and are going to fight to take the land. And several commentators, uh, I've mentioned this before, have suggested that, that that probably means there's something like at least 2 million total people, you know, include everybody, which is incredible. How, 2 million people wandering in a wilderness for 40 years? And, and the only explanation is God is in control. God is sovereignly taking care of them, providing for them, providing food for them uh, miraculously. We see God is in control. And one of the ways we see his sovereignty and his control is this really fascinating story toward the end of the book with this, this prophet named Balaam. He's, he's with Moab. He's for Moab. Moab is against Israel. And the king of Moab sort of brings in Balaam and says, I want you to prophesy. You're kind of a spiritual leader. So you speak oracles against Israel. And Balaam is unable to because God intervenes and basically, you know, speaks oracles, but they're for Israel. And God will actually speak through a donkey at one point. And so it's really fascinating. But, but listen to one of the oracles that, that Balaam speaks. Numbers 23, verse 10. He says, who can count the dust of Jacob? Who can count the dust of Jacob? Where does that language come from? That imagery of dust. It comes from a promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 13, verse 16, when he said, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. And now here's a pagan prophet saying, who can count the dust of Jacob? Truly, God is in control in providing these descendants, these sons and these daughters. And one of the questions we have to ask is, how does this apply to us today? What does this mean for us? And one of the significances that the New Testament points out is actually that we can become sons and daughters of Abraham. Listen, for example, to Galatians 3, verses 7 and 8. Powerful passage. Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith 
are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Abraham was promised many descendants, and with that came the promise of blessing. But I want to point out, it's not automatic. It's not like if you're a natural descendant, there's an automatic blessing. For example, here's an entire generation that's prevented from entering into the promised land. It's not automatic. Let me give another example. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. says, you are not, you, you are not sons of Abraham. Your father is the devil. Why? Because you're rejecting me. God has sent me his son. If, if you were really sons of God, if you were really sons of Abraham, you would embrace me. By rejecting me, you're proving to not be true sons of Abraham. And here's the incredible news for us today. Though we are not natural descendants of Abraham, we can actually be adopted in to the family and become sons of Abraham and receive the benefits that come with that. Uh, the, the Bible will also use the language, Paul will use the language of grafting. We can be grafted in. We can be adopted in. And we can receive the benefits. I, I looked up this past week. Who are the most wealthiest, who are the wealthiest people in our country? And the top 15, out of the top 15 list of names, three of them have the last name Walton. And that's not by coincidence. They are sons and daughters of Sam Walton. And if, if, here's the point. If you are a son or daughter or grandchild or great-grandchild of Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, you, you are the recipient of a lot of money. And my guess is there are some of us who wouldn't mind being adopted into that family and receiving some of the benefits that come with that. But here's what I want to tell you. We actually, here's the even better news for us today. We have an even greater, better inheritance than money from Sam Walton. We can receive the benefits of what it means to be a son of Abraham, namely a son or a daughter of God. And I want to highlight now what is perhaps the central benefit that comes from being God's child. And this brings us to talk thirdly about the promise of God's presence. God promises to bless Abraham. The blessing is to come to his descendants. And the promise, the central promise, is really that God is going to be with him. I will be with you. It's God's presence that's the real blessing. It's the essence of the blessing to have God with us. And, and by the way, that's the goal of the whole storyline of the Bible. That's what happens in the very end. God dwells with his people. And, and, and his people are with him, recognizing him as their God, and he, and he has his people there worshiping him. That's the whole goal of basically everything that God's doing. Through judgment, through salvation, it's about a people and God dwelling in their midst and being their God and them being his people. For example, we have the Aaronic blessing in Numbers 26. You're familiar with it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. What is that? It's a blessing of having God's presence, his face, to be able to stand in the presence of God and have his face shine upon you. This is, this is the blessing that God's people failed to remember. God is with us. And they start complaining and they start saying, we were better off as slaves. We were better off back in Egypt. And I just want to point out kind of a side note. Sometimes we have a tendency to look to the past and glamorize it and forget. We think of it as the glory days and we forget there was some pain that came with it and there were some challenges. And God's people are looking at the past when they were literally enslaved 
We were better off. Things were better off. I think their memory's a little skewed. Right? God is with you. He has a plan for you. And your best days are ahead. He promised you deliverance. He gave you deliverance. He's promising you a land. He's going to give you a land. Your best days are ahead. Why? Because God is with you. You have the promise of His face to shine upon you. And they just fail to trust it. They fail to recognize God is with us. What else do we need? We have the ultimate blessing. And I think this is really fascinating. Look at chapter 14, verse 10. It says, Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Just imagine the scene. They're literally about to kill Moses. And, and, and Joshua and Caleb. Why? Because they're the leaders. And they're saying, we need to go take this land. God's going to give it to us. And they're saying, you're out of your minds. Let's kill these leaders who are talking about this land. Let's stone them. Literally picking up stones to kill them. Let's appoint new leadership. And let's go back to Egypt. I think it'll be better off. And I don't know exactly how it happened, you know, but... but I can just imagine they, they've got these stones, rocks in their hands ready to throw and all of a sudden the glory of God comes down on the tent of meeting. And I wonder if they just dropped the rocks. Uh, oh, wow. God's been doing this all along. He's rescued them. He's appeared before them. They followed this. And it's like God is saying, do you remember me? Here I am. I'm with you. Do you remember the promises I've made to you? I have a plan for you. Do you remember that, that if I'm with you, you have everything you need. Do you remember? And, and as a result of this event, God actually says, I'm going to wipe them out and start all over. And Moses, being the incredible intercessor that he is, intercedes on behalf of these people, and he appeals to God's grace and mercy and God's promise to Abraham. Look with me, for example, at chapter 14, verses 18 and 19. He says, but the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. So Moses asked God to forgive them. God forgives them by not wiping them out, but there's still a consequence. They are going to be unable to enter the land. And by the way, Moses is going to be unable to enter the land. So God is gracious. He's quick to forgive. But we learn he, he does not allow His people to presume on His grace. He's quick to forgive. He's merciful. But He will not allow His people to assume and presume on His grace. We saw that last week with Aaron's sons. They learned the tough lesson. You don't presume on God's grace. And notice in Numbers 14, verse 4, it says, they presumed to go up. So here's the story. It's a fascinating story. God says, I'm going to give you the land. Go take the land. They say, no way. We'd rather be in Egypt. So God says, okay, fine. Your punishment is you'll die in this wilderness and you don't get the land at all. They say, okay, we have a change of mind. We actually do want to go take the land now. So let's go take the land. And they go but they don't have God's blessing. They don't do it according to His way. And guess what happens to them? They die by the thousands. And we learn this very important point. You know, partial obedience is disobedience. 
Delayed obedience is disobedience. In their minds, like we're doing what God said. We're going to take the land. He said he would give it to us. Yes, but, but it's too late. It's not, it's not in his timing. We, we use these, these phrases at our house pretty frequently. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. It happens almost every night at our house when we say, it's time to get up and go to bed. And they always get the get up part. Like, they're pretty good about getting up. And that's good. But it's the going to bed part. You know, they tend to find things to do. Like, I got to go get a snack. Or, oh yeah, I remember I need to do this project for school tomorrow. Or, oh yeah, yeah I, I need to do something with my device over here. I say, no, the, the command was get up and go to bed. And really anything short of the going to bed is, is not going to bed. And that was the whole command. We really didn't care about the getting up part. It was really going to bed. Right? Partial obedience, delayed obedience is disobedience. And I love Paul references this in 1 Corinthians 10. And he says this is an example for us to avoid. This, this generation and what happened here is an, is an example for our instruction to avoid and then we have this great verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I remember memorizing it really young. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. God is faithful. He will provide a way. You just do what He says to do. And it may seem impossible. And it may seem like, there's no way. I'm too much of an underdog. There's no way. The, the odds are stacked against me. There's no way. You just do what God's told you to do. And He is faithful. He will provide a way for you to do it. That was true for Israel. It's true for us. So here, here's my question for you. Kind of a, we're trying to apply this very practically. Is there a way in which you are obeying, but it's very partial, and therefore it's not total and therefore you're not really experiencing God's blessing the way we are meant to let me give some examples and, and, and I just mentioned them simply as examples just to get your mind thinking just some examples that came to my mind for example do you attend church but you're not really necessarily connected with God's people at a New Testament church you know attending church is not really the point it's about being connected with God's people at church so that there's accountability and there's Bible study and there's prayer. That, that's the point. Attending church, very important, very crucial. But, it, but if that's it, that, that's really partial obedience. The whole point of New Testament church is for brothers and sisters to come together as a family. Right? So are you partially obeying? Say, well, I attend. Well, that's, that's good, but we're not called to just attend. We're called to get plugged in, to get connected, to get involved in each other's lives. Secondly, are, are you giving, but it's not really sacrificial, it's not really costly? You say, well, but I'm giving. Here it is. That's wonderful. But the Bible actually calls us to give sacrificially, to give in a way that's actually costly. A third example. Uh, do you talk to people about church or about God or about spiritual things, and, you know, but don't ever, don't ever get to the gospel, like actually calling people to repent of sin and turn to Christ and believe in Him. That's, that's personal evangelism. I mean, talking to people about church and God and these kind of things is wonderful and great, and do it. But we're actually called to call people to faith. So, so are, are you partially obeying, but not fully obeying? I just want to point out, the blessing of God is found in the total 
obedience. And this brings us forth to talk about the promise of blessing for others. The promise to Abraham is that in him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And let's just point out, God wants to be blessed by all peoples. He wants to be worshipped by all peoples. He wants to be known by all peoples. He's the creator of the earth. So he, he wants to be glorified in all the earth. Numbers 24, 14, 21 says, All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. So the way he does it is he says, I'm going to bless these people so that they can be a blessing to others. So God wants to bless a people who come under his rule, live under his kingship, and thereby become a blessing to all the families of the earth. They are blessed in order to be a blessing. And by the way, so are we. We are blessed by God in order to be a blessing to others. And the blessing of Israel comes with it, blessing those who bless Israel and cursing those who curse Israel. And that makes sense. If Israel is defeated, then they can't be a blessing to the nations. So they have to survive in order to be a blessing to the nations. And so God says, I'm going to be with you in this way. And, and we start to see this happen once again as, as, uh, against Moab, for example. And Moab, once again, the king brings in this prophet, Balaam, and he says, I want you to prophesy against Israel, and Balaam just can't do it. God sovereignly intervenes, and Balaam starts prophesying in favor of Israel. And, and listen to one of the prophecies of Balaam, the Moab oracle. Numbers 24, 17. Balaam says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. The star and the scepter are symbols of kingship. So he's saying in a poetic kind of way, a king is going to come out of Jacob. A king is going to come from Israel. And that king is going to crush the forehead of Moab. Now, does that imagery in that language sound familiar? It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. The woman's going to have a son, and that son is going to crush the serpent's offspring and crush his head. Moab is a picture of the, the, of the offspring of the serpent. And the woman, which becomes Abraham, becomes Israel, is going to have a king who's going to be the one who crushes Moab's forehead. And this king is going to be the one who's going to come from Abraham who's going to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. He's going to be the savior of the world. But it's really important. In Genesis 3.15, we are told there's going to be enmity. There's going to be fighting. There's going to be war. And, and sometimes the serpent's offspring is going to strike at his heel. The serpent, the snake, is going to strike at his heel. And we have this fascinating story in Numbers 21. It almost seems bizarre. But guess what's happening? The people are being attacked by snakes. And when the snakes bite them, they die. And Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. And God says, okay, I'll tell you what we'll do, Moses. When the people are bitten by the snake, I want you to take a bronze serpent and I want you to hold it up and you tell the people to look at it and if they will look at the bronze serpent on a pole, I will heal them and they won't die. What is that all about? Well, Jesus actually references this story in John 3, 14 and 15. Listen to what Jesus says. 
just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So in the wilderness, when a person was bitten by a snake, that person would die. It was a consequence of sin, by the way, God's judgment. And God gave him a provision, a provision to be saved, a provision to not die, a provision to live. And the provision, ironically, was a serpent. The very thing that was the curse. What's the curse? The snake. What's the provision? A snake. Look at a snake, a bronze snake on a pole. Look at a bronze snake and be saved from being bitten by a bronze, by a snake. They say, what does that have to do with Jesus and us? And why does Jesus quote that? Here's why. We've all been bitten by the snake, so to speak. We're all under the curse. And that curse leads to death. And the incredible news is God has made a provision for us. And what is the provision? What is the thing that we're supposed to look to? It's not a bronze serpent on a pole. It's Jesus lifted up on a cross. Here's the irony. We are under a curse because of our sin. The curse is death. What are we supposed to look to in order to be saved from death? We're supposed to look to death. We're supposed to look to the curse. We're supposed to look to Jesus taking the curse, the wrath for us. And the Bible says if we will, we will be saved. We will be spared. Listen, for example, to Galatians 3, 13 and 14. This is a powerful passage, key passage, if you want to write it down. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Listen to this. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We can receive the promise made to Abraham. How? How do we receive the promise made to Abraham? We receive it by looking to a bloody cross. A cross where Jesus took the curse for our sin. And the Bible says if we will look to Him and trust that He's taking the curse for us, then we can be spared the curse. Why? Why would God set it up this way? Why a bronze serpent in the wilderness? Why a Roman bloody cross? A symbol of curse and punishment. Why? Why this? And I think the answer is because it requires faith and humility to believe it. That's all it requires. That's all He requires. Faith and and the humility that comes with that faith. You have to first of all recognize you are snake bitten. You, 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 ha- you are under a curse that leads to death. And it's eternal death. It's eternal separation. You have to believe that. That requires humility. Many people say, I'm really not that bad. So that's step one. Step two, you have to look not to a bronze serpent on a pole, but you have to look to Jesus Christ on a cross. Lift it up, experiencing the curse and the wrath of God for you. And you have to trust He's doing that for you. And many people in our world say, that's just too weird. It's bizarre. It's fairy tale esque That sounds kind of foolish. It sounds kind of silly. I don't think I will. And that's the whole point. Will, will you humble yourself and have faith and trust and believe that God did this for you? If you do, the Bible says God is faithful. And He will do for you everything He's promised to do. 
Think about the verse that comes right on the heels of John 3, 14 and 15 and the bronze serpent. I'm guessing you know it. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but will live. You want to live? You can. You just have to look to Jesus on the cross and trust that He's taking the curse for you. And if you do, you will live. God is faithful. You will live even more than live. You will be adopted into His family as His sons and daughters. And you will get all the benefits that come from that. And perhaps the central benefit is you will have His face shine upon you. That's what you were created for. That's what you're longing for. You can experience that. Look to Jesus and live. Let's pray.